Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. When John Paulson, a hedge fund billionaire, gave Harvard, the richest university in the world, a $400 million gift, many onlookers scoffed. Why did Harvard need this money when so many state schools and community colleges and their students could genuinely benefit? Especially when this money tends to grow the already mammoth endowment at a school like Harvard or a school like Princeton or a school like Yale. Among the critics of big, rich universities getting bigger and richer is author Malcolm Gladwell's Here He's Speaking on NPR's Weekend Edition. The issue is that all of this circular system is tax deductible. You and I and everyone else in America are subsidizing this activity. I'm happy to subsidize as a taxpayer things that I think are a worthwhile use of my money and things that I think advance the general cause of happiness and social justice in this country. I don't see why I should be subsidizing the $26 billion endowment of Yale so they can afford to spend half a billion dollars each year paying their hedge fund managers. That's the issue. It's our money. But Yale University says they pay out lots of money from their endowment to help provide student aid and to float their general operating budget. Besides, why does it matter to the rest of us what Yale does with its fortune? That's the question today where we live, and you can join our conversation. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us from NPR's Washington headquarters is Goldie Blumenstick, senior writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education, who's been writing about this issue. Goldie, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. And also joining us by phone is Victor Fleischer. He's a professor of law at the University of San Diego and author of a recent New York Times op-ed, Stop Universities from Hoarding Money. This got a lot of attention and prompted that conversation we heard with Malcolm Gladwell. And we're glad to have Victor Fleischer by phone from California today. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So let's just put that first question to you first, sir. Maybe Yale's endowment is $26 billion. Why does it matter to the rest of us? Well, it matters to the rest of us because universities are tax-exempt and they're public charities under 501c3 of the tax code. And so we all have an interest in making sure that entities that are are tax-subsidized are using their advantages properly. And in this case, I start the op-ed by asking who the endowment is there to benefit. So I ask who gets more from the endowment, private equity fund managers or Yale students? And the question gives you the answer. It's it's the fund managers, and it, and it's not close. And I think we have that backwards. Yale is a very successful investor, and if they think the best way to grow the endowment is to invest in private equity, I'm not going to second-guess that decision. But I think as a member of the public, I think it's right for us to ask, are they spending an appropriate amount of that money to advance the charitable mission. In a moment, maybe we'll talk a bit more about how a school like Yale could spend more of its money to expand the charitable mission, to give away more to students. Yale has provided a a statement, which I'll read a little bit from in just a moment. But let's talk for a moment, if we could, sir, about the private equity management piece of this. 
part of the argument that you make and that Malcolm Gladwell makes is that the university is paying very high fees, an awful lot of money, to hedge fund managers in order to grow their money, which they've been very successful at. But then when you see a gift like the the big gift to Yale University from a, a hedge fund manager, you start to wonder if there's a circle at work, if, it, if indeed hedge fund managers are willing to give lots of money to endowments so that they can help manage this money so that they can make a lot of money on fees. That seems to be the circle that you're drawing. I didn't intend to draw that, in, certainly in the case of the gifts that I mentioned in the, in the article. I, no, nobody suggested that there's a, a quid pro quo. To my knowledge, Yale doesn't actually invest any money with Steve Schwartzman, who is the donor from, from Blackstone, a, a private equity firm. Yeah. The point, rather, is that it's part of the same culture. There may be some funny business going on at, at smaller endowments, and there's some evidence that there is. But in, in the case of the the big gifts that I mentioned, uh, it's rather that it's the endowments are big players uh, in this world of private equity and, and hedge funds. And so the gifts, which are beneficial to the universities, uh, are really reflective of the fact that the big endowments and the big investors in the private equity space are, are part of the same world and part of the same culture. Uh, I certainly didn't mean to Say and in fact, in the op-ed, I said, I, you know, no, nobody's suggesting that there's a quid pro quo here because there isn't. Absolutely, I'll I'll just say that that's an inference I was certainly drawing, and I think that uh, Malcolm Gladwell and some of the criticism that he made coming out of your op-ed it certainly seems to suggest some of that. But it's a point well taken. I want to bring in Goldie Blumenstick to talk about this. Obviously, because of Victor Fleischer's op-ed and all of the response that it got on the New York Times website, this is a a big issue once again. But it's not a terribly new issue. This is something that's been debated quite a bit in higher education circles for a while, right? Yes, it has. I mean, there's two broader issues. I mean, there's the endowment issue in particular, and then there's the broader issue that Professor Fleischer got out and Malcolm Gladwell got out also, which is just the broader equity issue about the kinds of tax benefits that go to wealthier institutions directly and indirectly. And then there's also the uh, sort of what they're paying their hedge fund managers. Well, we'll talk about those tax benefits. I mean, what does it mean to be a big university like like Harvard or Yale? Obviously, you have these huge endowments. That's because a lot of very rich alumni have given an awful lot of money over the course of time. Then they're very smart about the way they invest it. Do you think that Victor Fleischer and others should be as concerned as they are about the fact that these are essentially tax-exempt organizations that are, are getting away with not paying their fair share given all the money that they have? Well, there are tax-exempt organizations by federal law, and so it's not like they're cheating anybody about this. And so the bigger issue is whether we think these are the kinds of institutions that should be benefiting from these tax breaks that they get. And there's been a lot of discussion over the years. Some of your listeners may remember back in 2007, Senator Grassley was on a little bit of a campaign, I guess, against against wealthy endowments, the bigger ones, arguing that if they weren't spending a good percentage out of their endowment, he was arguing that they should be spending at least 5%, maybe more, uh, out of their endowments every year, that they shouldn't be entitled to such tax breaks. I've run across other advocates over the years who've argued that if the if endowments of a certain size aren't spending a certain amount helping lower-income students, that they shouldn't be entitled to their uh, tax break, You know that these are, in fact, charitable organizations under the law and that there ought to be some standards for them. You know, foundations, which operate under a slightly different portion of the tax code, they're required to spend out 5% a year of their um, assets. 
in return for their tax break. And a lot of people sort of look at that number as sort of a good benchmark. One of the arguments that's been made coming out of your piece, Victor Fleischer, is that maybe that number needs to go go at least to five five percent or north of that. I mean, what do you say about that? About some sort of mandate that universities would spend down more of the endowment than they are right now? I think there should be a mandate. I think the the five percent figure is a good place to start, but there's actually pretty good evidence that even that number is is too low. Uh, if you look at how private foundations have performed over time, 5% is too low a number if the goal is to keep the uh, endowment in a steady state in perpetuity. The other thing I'll add is, going back to the tax question, is it's, it's really a tax subsidy times three. If you give money to a university, the donation is, is tax deductible uh, as a charitable gift. Once the university uh, has the gift, it's allowed to grow that tax-free without paying any income tax. And the people who manage the money, the private equity and hedge fund managers um, who manage the endowment on behalf of Yale, pay tax at a lower rate under what's sometimes called the carried interest loophole. The income to the private equity fund managers is often taxed at the low capital gains rate instead of the ordinary income rate. We're talking today about big universities and some of their big endowments, whether or not universities like Harvard and Yale are hoarding money and what it might actually mean for the rest of us. Victor Fleischer, who is a law professor at San Diego, wrote about this in the New York Times, and he got a lot of response, including from Malcolm Gladwell on NPR's Weekend Edition. We're also talking today with Goldie Blumenstick, who's senior writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education, who's been writing about these issues for years. Goldie, you mentioned Senator Grassley during a hearing in 2010 with then-Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner. Uh, Grassley brought up the issue of growing endowments and tuitions. While these universities are accumulating large endowments, they're at the same time raising tuition and other expenses at alarming rates. Parents and students bear the cost of that rise, uh, uh, of that burden. Uh, it, uh, it doesn't make sense to have tax-favored endowments and tuitions both growing geometrically. So, uh, Goldie, here's another one of these arguments, right? Senator Grassley is essentially saying there's a fairness argument here. It's one thing for universities to be able to get a lot of money into their endowments and and spend them down at the level they want, but it's another thing to have these same universities maybe charging more for students year after year. He's concerned about the um, about the tuitions growing. I assume that others join him in that. Uh, yeah, that's a common concern out there. I, I think, by the way, as sexy as this topic is, it's also important to remember that This is a problem for a small, rarefied universe of universities, actually. I mean, there's only about, I did the count the other day looking at the uh, endowment study, the recent one that came out. I think there's 166 endowments now with um, values over 500 million. I know Professor Fleischer has talked about taxing endowments even at a much lower level, but there's some 4,000 colleges out there. A lot of colleges would love to have this problem, by the way, and would love to be in this debate. But it's really a problem of only a sort of a select few institutions. But do you think that those select few institutions, because of the size of the endowment that we're talking about, do you think that it's it's an issue, whether or not it's it's Senator Grassley in 2010, or for anybody in Congress right right now to actually get involved in? Or or, are you saying that it's such a small number of universities, comparatively speaking, that it's maybe not as as big an issue as, as we're making of it? No, I think it's a very legitimate public policy issue. Uh, I'm just trying to sort of point out that it's only an issue for a small number of universities. When I wrote the book uh, on higher education a few years ago, 
I discovered there were about three dozen universities that had endowments that were big enough to support even a quarter of their operations. Mm. Uh, I think Yale's endowment covers about a third of its operations. So Yale does, even though it spends that $170 million from the, uh, on student aid, which was the figure um, Professor Fleischer came up with, it spends about a billion dollars a year from its endowment to support Yale. So it's not like it's not spending money out of its endowment. Yeah, I, do, go, I was just going to say, according to the university, it's about $170 million on student aid and about $830 million just on general operating. That comes out of the endowment. So that is a, a chunk of money that's coming out to just help pay for operations at Yale. Go ahead, Goldie. Right. Well, and that's much higher percentage than almost any other university probably spends out of their endowment. I think the um, the average is more like 9 or 11% overall. And, you know, obviously a wealthier university is going to be able to have spend more money out of its endowment for that. I look at, the, you know, the endowment is a, a source of revenue because of investment returns. It's also a place where a lot of, you know, donations go into the endowment. I think we also have to look at where philanthropy in this country is going, and a lot of that is going increasingly concentrated to the richest universities um, in the country, and that's sort of a, that's a bigger challenge for our country right now. I think I looked at some of the numbers in 2014, uh, higher education got $37.5 billion in donations, and a quarter of that went to 20 universities. And why is that? What, I mean, why do the big donors decide that that's where the, the smart money goes? To some degree, they're alumni of those institutions, but not all of them are, of course. Some degree, those institutions are doing what seems like you know exciting things. A lot of these things are for big medical or medical research donations, and obviously that's kind of exciting, and that's not the kind of thing that a community college will be able to pull off, so people are excited about that. And there's a prestige factor there, I guess, too. But community colleges and state regional universities and small private colleges are doing a lot of the heavy lift on educating you know, lower-income students in this country, and they're not the beneficiaries of the same kind of philanthropy that the biggest, wealthiest research universities are getting. So, so two questions to you, Dr. Fleischer. One has to do with whether or not this is just really a problem of the top tier of universities uh, or whether or not this is something that you think extends beyond that. I mean, if Goldie counts 100-some universities that have endowments over a certain threshold, do you think that we should really be looking closely at all of these universities, or do you think that it's really the Harvards, the Yales, and the Princetons that are, are the culprit here in the case that you're making? I do think it's, it's a much broader issue. So there are 447 colleges and universities with at least $100 million. And the smaller endowments, in some ways, it's more troubling because like the elite endowments, they are focused on growing the endowment, uh, even at the expense of benefits to, to students. Uh, and so they, they really prioritize growth over spending. And it's doubly problematic uh, for these smaller and, and mid-size endowments because they're not as efficient uh, in their investing as uh, Harvard, Yale, uh, Princeton, Stanford, and so forth. They don't get access to the best uh, investment funds. They don't always get the same returns that the elite endowments get. And so it may not make a whole lot of sense for them to follow the, the Yale model uh, in their investing because they can't necessarily pull it off. And uh, David Swenson, the famous and terrific uh, chief of the Yale Investment Office, has said this, is it may not be a model for everyone to follow. And so I'm quite troubled by the way that the uh, smaller endowments are, are trying to follow this path and maybe stumbling along the way. The, the other piece of this that Goldie mentioned is that so much of the money that comes into universities through charitable giving comes to these top universities. Is there an argument to be made, Professor, that in part, yes, that has to do with wealthy people coming from wealthy schools and it's a type of loyalty, but a lot of it has to do with 
this is money they feel can make some sort of a breakthrough. If you concentrate money at a Yale or a Harvard or a Princeton, they have the ability to spend this money to do research that will actually have a greater net benefit for the rest of us than if you're spreading it around to smaller state schools or community colleges. Well, there's two aspects that I want to comment on there. The first is it does reflect the growing problem of inequality that we have in the United States, that more and more of our wealth is being concentrated, not just in the 1%, but the 1% of the 1%. The uh, folks who manage uh, private equity funds and hedge funds are controlling a greater amount of the wealth in this country. Uh, And when they choose to to give it away, they do tend to concentrate it on two things, on on universities uh, and on medical research, and and those two, two things do overlap. So the other piece of that is, you're right, there's incredibly exciting research. Some of the best scientists in the world uh, work at places like Harvard uh, and Yale and Stanford. But the gifts only advance scientific research if the money is spent from the endowment. If the money sits in the endowment and is not spent, it's not doing scientific research. And so one of the reasons that I'm pushing for more spending is I'm a big believer in our universities. I think our research universities are clearly the best in the world, uh, and they deserve as much support as, as we can give them. And one of the, one of the sources of that support uh, should be these massive endowments. And while a place like Yale does spend a billion a year, it spends about 5% of its endowment uh, annually, it could certainly do more. I want to get to a few phone calls. Arthur is calling from New Haven. Hi, Arthur. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for this conversation. Let me just say first, I'm an alum of Harvard Business School and a, an alum of Yale School of Drama. And I've, as a result, looked into this uh, in a little detail. I, I don't see how we can avoid focusing on the idea that the university at Yale is spending 33% is underwriting 33% of its annual budget uh, with uh, the endowment. I mean, that's huge and is incredibly commendable. The university's uh, efforts are uh, in scholarship, just world-class. My concern is that you're uh, really attacking or questioning a world-class university as it does its work. I agree that uh, tuition should be as high as possible, uh, the, the financial aid to tuition should be as high as possible. But let me just contrast this with Harvard Business School. Uh, Harvard Business School has a, a $2.9 billion endowment. Every single one of the students who graduate from Harvard Business School will go on to make fortunes. I don't understand why you don't put the focus on special cases like mm-hmm. that. I would be very much in favor of your uh, of the proposal that uh, the carried interest that was referred to before, by which the hedge fund managers uh, receive a special tax break, that should be eliminated. Well, I, thank you very much, Arthur, for your perspective, because I think that you obviously have looked into this from your background. And Goldie Blumenstein, could you just comment on that? He he brings up the endowment at Harvard Business School specifically, and again, here's an institution where. You go through Harvard Business School, you you will likely be someone who can give Harvard Business School an awful lot of money. He says we should make a distinction between uh, them having a $2.9 billion endowment for that relatively small program versus uh, Yale having a, a very large endowment and spending quite a bit of it on its operations. 
it's not for me to tell universities how to spend their money. I do notice there's an increasing sensitivity and an increasing awareness in public policy circles um, and for how universities are spending it and whether they should be getting tax-favored treatment depending on how they're using their money. When the, uh, This isn't really about the endowments, but when the Obama administration was talking recently about creating col- a college rating system, they talked about um, including as a criteria for how they rate colleges, how well they're serving Pell Grant students. I think that's the kind of consciousness that's kind of entering the discussion now that wasn't there a few years ago. I want to hit one point that Professor Fleischer made. He did a follow-up article to the um, first one he did, yes. where he talked a little bit about having more transparency about these fees. Frankly, I'd be kind of curious to know, I mean, his estimate on the hedge fund fees comes from his back of the envelope, or maybe better than that estimate on what Yale paid. But he's proposing that on the 990 forms, the tax forms that all nonprofits um, file, that they should have to disclose a little bit more information about what they're paying to hedge fund managers and you know out of their endowments. I think that would be a pretty interesting approach. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that it's going to go very far in this environment of people trying to sort of rein in the IRS. But if those fees were out on the table, I kind of wonder how this discussion would change. I'd like to have uh, Victor Fleischer talk about that in a moment, but we have to take a break first. Goldie Blumenstick is a senior writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Victor Fleischer is a professor of law at the University of San Diego and author of a recent New York Times op-ed piece. And a follow-up got us thinking about college endowments. More of your calls after this break, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today on the program, we've been talking about big universities and big endowments, how they spend their money. Sometimes people think it's really none of our business, but a very compelling op-ed in the New York Times called Stop Universities from Hoarding Money by Victor Fleischer has gotten us thinking about this in a new way. He's joining us today by phone from San Diego, where he's a professor of law at the University of San Diego. Uh, we're also joined from Washington, D.C., by the senior writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education, Goldie Blumenstick, also author of American Higher Education in Crisis, What Everyone Needs to Know. She's at NPR in Washington today. We're also taking some of your phone calls on this issue. Uh, let's go first to Tim, who is calling from Glastonbury. Hi, Tim. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. I wanted to read the point raised by one of your previous callers, which is, Hey, Tim, I'm going to put you on hold, and I want to try to reestablish your line. It's a little hard to hear you. I want to make sure that we can hear your question. We're getting a lot of tweets and Facebook messages from people. Joel says, Yale writes to me regularly asking for donations. Don't they have enough? Meanwhile, Patty says, I got my Ph.D. in psychology at Yale in 1992. Uh, I received a tuition waiver and a stipend to live on for five years. I'll be forever grateful to leave school with no debt. And finally, a tweet from DFA New Haven. The issue is not just wealthy universities' responsibility to their own students, but also to their even needier host communities. Maybe we can pick up there, uh, Victor Fleischer, before we end our conversation today, because I think that's an important piece of this, trying, trying to figure out where and how we maybe incentivize universities that have built up such wealth, especially with the the tax breaks that we've all subsidized, where should they be spending this money? Is it on more aid to their students? Is it on more aid to the host communities? What do you see here? One way to think about this question is imagine that you've got a big pile of money and you have two choices. You can invest it in the financial markets and get the return that you're expecting to get. And a lot of people look at the financial markets today and they worry about we may be close to a peak in the equity markets. We may not be able to count on the big returns that we've had in years past. And then the choice, on the other hand, is you can invest in human capital. So a lot of people who study universities from an economic perspective talk about 
investments in knowledge as an investment in human capital. So when you fund one more student so that they can go to college for free, you're making an investment in their future and enhancing their future ability to earn. If you can't beat 5% return by investing in human capital these days, that's surprising. That's counter to what we know about how the uh, marginal student benefits from going to college. So for me, it, it seems pretty clear that we ought that we're out of balance right now. And instead of taking these huge piles of cash and putting them into the financial markets, we ought to be investing more on the human side. We ought to be sending more kids to school, letting them graduate with less debt. And as as you just pointed out, there's also other investments that one could think about making uh, investments in New Haven or East Palo Alto or the areas where these universities sit that are resource-deprived and could certainly benefit from some further assistance. So, Goldie, what do we know about the best way to do that? If we were to put smart money on human capital, as the professor suggests, is it helping to fund President Obama's dream of making community college free for everyone? Is it trying to get more low-income elite students into places like Harvard and Yale where they can truly succeed? Is it about giving money to New Haven and and East Palo Alto and places where maybe a high school student needs a leg up to just get into college. What, what do experts say about this? Where should we be spending this money? Yes. I mean, <laughs> yes on everything. <laughs> yes on everything. I mean, it, the fact is we have a lot of demands in our society and in our higher education system. And any one of those things would be, you could make a good argument for any one of those things. And to be honest, there's often a lot of demands on the endowment. What always makes this such an interesting discussion for me is, is the endowment for the benefit of, this insti- of the one institution? And is the endowment's responsibility to, you know, is its first responsibility to be an investment fund, to put growth at its first priority? Or, you know, could it sacrifice a little bit of growth to be doing things like, you know, investing in more sustainable efforts or doing more money in its communities? I've seen a lot of arguments about investing in communities. And I, by the way, over the years, I know Yale has done some, and a lot of other big universities have been doing some investing in their own communities. Um, some of it's self-interested investment and some of it's um, beyond that. It's a complicated set of questions for these endowments. They have to balance serving the current students, serving students in perpetuity. This argument about what's the best number to spend at, I think, is is a fascinating one. Before the crash, I think there was a lot more sympathy for a discussion about spending, you know, that endowments should be spending 7 or 8 maybe even 7%. I think that's what the pension funds go for, trying to get sort of a spending rate like that. I think after the crash, people got freaked again. Now that, you know, returns are sort of getting back to sort of a more solid level, except for last week. Um, I was going to say, except for last week, because there's always a crash. There's always something around the corner that's going to make us skittish about this sort of investment. I want to go back to Tim in Glastonbury, who I think his line is better. Hey, Tim, go ahead quickly, if you would. I think it's a mistake to measure the success of the charitable mission of a university just by how much it's doing for its students. Universities do so much more than that. They conduct scientific and medical research. They fund and feed the arts. They fund think tanks that inform public policy. Uh, And I think some of the ire at these rich institutions is a bit misdirected. I think really what people are upset about is that we underfund or in some cases mismanage community colleges or state institutions. And I think people are angry at the idea at the levels of compensation that we provide to hedge fund managers and people in the financial sector, both in terms of the fees that they draw from the endowments and the fact that they have the kind of money to make these huge gifts. Uh, But I think it's a mistake to sort of shake our fists at the rich institutions when those two issues are really the thing that are causing the problem. Tim, I'm glad we were able to get your call. And Victor Fleischer, before I let you go, maybe you could respond to Tim. I think there's a number of of different things that we can expect from elite institutions. And 
they do do incredibly wonderful research, and I, I, I agree with that. There's some of the most important basic scientific research is performed by these these great research uh, universities. But that doesn't answer the question of, of whether we should look at how endowments are spent. That's a, a public policy question that we all have an interest in. And if you are a believer in, in the scientific research of these universities, well, we could do more, not just at the elite universities, but there's wonderful research being done at uh, mid-size uh, research universities uh, as well. And I think we could do more than we're doing now. Victor Fleischer is a professor of law at the University of San Diego, author of a recent New York Times op-ed called Stop Universities from Hoarding Money. He's gotten us talking about this today. I also want to thank Goldie Blumenstick, who's senior writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education and author of American Higher Education in Crisis, What Everyone Needs to Know. She joined us today from the studios of NPR in Washington. I want to turn to Tom Conroy. He's press secretary for Yale University. They had provided a statement after Victor Fleischer's article came out in the New York Times, but we were uh, lucky to have Tom here to join us for a few minutes. And first of all, could you just give a response to some of what Victor Fleischer had to say? Obviously, I think we got through some of the details that I know that you probably want to get out about the amount of money that Yale spends out of its endowment each year for operational costs and also to give to students. What else do you want to say in response to uh, Dr. Fleischer's uh, op-ed? One of the issues that generates this debate is college affordability. And so one of the important things that people need to know is how affordable Yale is, because that's that's really why we're concerned about the size of endowments and how much of endowments are spent. Yale just welcomed a freshman class, and 64% of those students are receiving financial aid, and their average grant is $42,000. of the new freshmen will be the first in their families to earn a bachelor's degree. 18% are receiving federal Pell Grants. Uh, 41% identify themselves as members of minority groups. So the point is, is that Yale is affordable to everyone. No one turns down Yale or has to turn down Yale College because of cost, because of the large financial aid. At the end of their careers, because of this financial aid, very few Yale students borrow any money to go to Yale. And the ones that do borrow, borrow much, much less than the national average. So if you're talking about endowments, the reason we're talking about it, a lot of it is because of college affordability. And Yale is very affordable. As a matter of fact, many kids at Yale are paying much less for college than they would if they went to their state university. So a big piece of the argument that's being made by Malcolm Gladwell and Victor Fleischer and others has to do with that. The rest of it, though, I think has to do with how we subsidize the endowments of Yale and other large uh, universities because they are indeed tax-free. So we help to build that endowment ourselves through our essentially giving away tax incentives to Yale, Harvard, Stanford, and, and other universities. One of the things that's been addressed by Victor Fleischer and others is, well, maybe there should just be a different threshold. Maybe you should be expected to spend more out of that endowment per year. Is there something to be said for that or something that uh, the university would be willing to look at down the road? You're right, John. There's a lot of debate about what level of spending should come from endowments at places, at research universities that have endowments and also various foundations. I think the point is, from Yale's point of view, is that the endowment is spent at a level to prudently balance the 
objectives of providing substantial income to the operating budget now and protecting the value of the endowment over time so that future generations of students can receive the same extraordinary support as today's. So it's a matter of wanting the endowment to be there in perpetuity for future students. There's no point in anyone making a donation to endowment if it's not going to grow. The donors who contribute to endowments, they're very hopeful that Yale will invest it in a way that it will grow and continue to benefit students long after the donors are no longer alive. Tom, I just have a minute left, but I'd love for you to talk about the amount of money that Yale spends each year on the New Haven Promise. This is a program that was instituted some years ago by the university and also by the city of New Haven to give high school students who maintain certain standards in school an opportunity to go to a private university or to a public university in the state. How much of the endowment money that Yale spends goes to fund the New Haven Promise? You know, as you know, John, we have a very good relationship with the city of New Haven. It's just gotten so productive and amicable over the last 20 years or so. And Yale also makes a large voluntary payment to the city of New Haven. And as you say, funds the New Haven Promise. I don't know the exact money today, but it will grow as more students qualify and go down the road into college. So as more students enter college and become and are eligible for the New Haven Promise, the budget from Yale to pay for that will go up. But I don't have the exact number in this particular year. Okay. Is is it in the tens of millions, the millions of dollars a year, just ballpark? I'm sorry. I don't have the number for this year, unfortunately. Well, we'll have you back to talk more about that. Great. Tom Conroy, a Press Secretary for Yale University, thank you so much for joining us. When, when we come back from our break, we'll be joined by Richard Sugarman, who left the Connecticut Forum to lead the Hartford Promise. That's an organization to help Hartford public school students afford and navigate their college experience. That's next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, looks at the week in the news with Colin McEnroe and other reporters and news observers. Hope you can join us for the show. Today we're talking about the high cost of a college education and the big universities that are collecting an awful lot of money. But we're going to turn to helping high school students pay for college now and a new program called Hartford Promise. Richard Sugarman, our longtime friend and founder of the Connecticut Forum, left the forum to lead Hartford Promise and we'd like to hear more about this program. First of all, Richard, welcome back to Where We Live. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Great to see you. This is a very exciting project. Maybe you can explain what Hartford Promise is first. Yeah, I I loved your last discussion, though, John. It it was really great. So Hartford Promise is a large-scale college scholarship fund and college success program. It's important to understand both of those things. So Hartford Promise is known as a place-based scholarship. So if you – four things – and you get a Promise scholarship in Hartford. If you live in Hartford, if you go to Hartford Public High School, if you have a 3.0 GPA, B average, mm-hmm. 93% attendance during high school, you will get a Hartford Promise scholarship. $20,000 if you go to a four-year college, so yeah. 5000 a year for the four years of four-year college, $2,500 a year if you go to a two-year college. Transfer from a two-year to four-year college, you will pick up the $5,000 a year. So it's a it's a large-scale scholarship that we think actually not only can change lives, but can change the decisions that Mm -hmm. kids and parents and guidance counselors make about college. But you also need to see Hartford Promise within an integrated model. So we know just giving the scholarships reduces the, really eliminates in most cases, the financial barriers. But what many of these kids need 
is they need an arm to reach forward with them into college to help them become comfortable in a college atmosphere, to be able to navigate that roadmap in a college atmosphere. This is something we hear all the time, Richard, that, yeah, a student does very well in school. Maybe they get a scholarship. They get into school, and then they're out within a year and a half because they just can't figure it all out. Right. And actually, John, the drop-off happens quicker than that in many cases. There's something called summer melt, where 20 percent of the Mm. students who are accepted into college don't even go to college in September. So that's the first point where there really needs to be intervention and support and help and and with transition and so on and familiarity. And then there's a big drop-off even in first semester. There's a lot of evidence that said kids that take their first classes, if they do badly in that first test, that sort of reinforces the sense that I can't make it here, I don't belong here. So having a peer relationship, having a mentor, having the kind of support and services that says you do belong here, you can make it, I made it, and so on. Those things are critical mm-hmm. in terms of kids. So that first, that first experience, that first year is critical in terms of being able to persist and, and be successful. Well, I, I want to talk more about the students and their experience in just a moment. I want to t- talk a little bit, though, about the money to dovetail off of the last conversation yeah. that we had. We mentioned the New Haven Promise, something that Yale is helping to fund. Of course, as we know, Yale has an awful lot of money. Where's the money coming from for the Hartford John, Promise I can program? give you all the numbers. Okay. So, so, so trust me. <laughs> I somehow we, knew you would. We Richard. have all the numbers, John. So when I say this is a large-scale program, so the 2016 is the first year that we're going to see Hartford Promise Scholars, Mm -hmm. the senior class of 2016, so the kids that started this week and are seniors this year. We expect 140 students out of that senior class to be Promise Scholars. So we're talking large scale here. And the cost for that class through college will be somewhere around $1.7 million to provide them with these scholarships. And where does the money come from? Who, who gives the, you the $1.7 million? So we, we have a great group of initial champions that are part of this. So Travelers has stepped up and made a major contribution to this. Hartford Hospital has stepped up and made a major contribution. And they took this position. You were talking about human capital and mm-hmm. investment in human capital. So Hartford Hospital basically said, we will invest in these people one way or another, either as patients that we have to provide care for or we can invest in the human capital and hope that they come to us as employees and as successful people in the community. So they chose to make this investment in human capital mm-hmm. in Hartford Promise. The Say Yes Foundation is a supporter. Newman's Own Foundation is a supporter. Bob Petroselli is a, is a supporter. Hartford Board of Education is a supporter. So we've got a great group of initial champions. Hartford Consortium for Higher Education is also a big part of this. So great group of initial champions, and we want to build upon that. How does it change people's mindset about a community when you start to do something like this? Because as I think we know, there's an awful lot of despair at times about the education system in Hartford, about the prospects for young people who grow up in Hartford. And it sounds as though part of what you're doing is just trying to change a mindset amongst the corporate community and philanthropists that they can actually make a difference by by helping here. Well, uh, there's no question about it. So, so the mindset change is also for students yep. to feel that they have possibilities and opportunities. That's a, that's a big deal, that they have all sorts of choices. For their parents to understand that there are choices for their kids. Frankly, for teachers and guidance counselors to understand that they, are, they have an array of choices and financial barriers will not stand in the way of those choices. So all of those mindsets, Sean. But in terms of our community, I think we have to begin to see this as a good news story. Hartford education has a lot of elements of a very good news story in terms of great successes and great opportunities. So we have to be prepared to invest in that, right? Mm-hmm. We all have to see. what could. Frankly, I don't understand any investment. I can't imagine any investment that would be a better investment than in education. So there are, there in, in Pittsburgh, 
in Denver, in Kalamazoo. They have had promise scholarships for more than six years. They have got evidence in terms of this economic development and human capital investment that a $1 invested in this scholarship returns anywhere from 4 to $6 in terms of direct economic benefit to the community and increased taxes in the community. So this is not a 4 or 5% return. Yeah. This is a 4 to 600%. A point that a caller wanted to make, and we just don't have time for it, any program like this that's built on you know philanthropists, people giving a certain amount of money to get this jump started, what happens if the market tanks again? I mean, are we, are we girded here in your project, Richard, against the possibility of people not giving as much because something terrible happens with the stock market again? I liked your comment. And there's always a market crash somewhere. I mean, right. we, we, we live through that. That's, that's just part of our history. I don't think we should, we should make investments or we should make these kinds of big decisions based on potential future financial matters. I mean, I don't think that leads to good planning anywhere. This is the best investment that I'm aware of. I'm going to put the rest of my energy for the rest of my work life into this because I think this is absolutely the place where we can change our community, we can change the prospects of kids and families in our community. And frankly, I think we can transform Hartford with this. And so 140 students or so coming through the program this year who just started school are going to be graduating, getting a chance to take part in this. They're going to get Promise Scholarships this year. 140 students in this graduating class are going to be Promise Scholars, and their lives are going to be changed as a result of that. Richard Sugarman, the former executive director of the Connecticut Forum, has a new project called Hartford Promise, which will help kids go to college. Thanks, Richard. And thanks to the producer of today's show, Tucker Ives, and also to Betsy Kaplan, Lydia Brown, Kion Wolf, our technical producer, Heather Brandon, our digital editor, and our executive producer, Katie Talarski. I'm John Dankowski. This is where we live.